At the cross, we find hope for the hopeless, don't we? Rest for the weary and healing for all who are broken. And in that sense, before Christ in our lives, we were all broken. And now with Christ, we have healing and hope and wholeness, don't we, as believers. And still there's truth to the statement, even to believers, that we're yet broken people. And we're all often in need of renewal by the Spirit of God as we journey through this life together with our imperfections and our hurts and our struggles and all of it. In fact, there's a pattern in Scripture of God using broken people to accomplish His will, not so much those who had it all together, not too many who led impeccable lives. He routinely chose to use men and women with all kinds of issues and hurts and brokenness. Joseph was abused and rejected by his family. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and <clears throat> murdered an innocent man. Jonah tried to run from God. Ruth and Naomi lost their husbands and were facing poverty and homelessness. Peter denied Christ. Martha worried about everything all the time. Paul had a physical ailment that never healed. So much physical and spiritual and emotional brokenness in these people, and yet God used them all in amazing and powerful ways. This is the God that we serve. He's the God of the broken. And as we continue to survey the life of Moses today in our series, The Journey, we'll discover that Moses experienced brokenness throughout his life, and yet just like these others that I just mentioned, he was used by God in wonderful ways, brokenness and all. And as we've been doing, we'll try to draw out some parallels today from Moses' journey with our own, as there are many. So let's turn to the book of Exodus chapter 4, and we'll pick up in our text where we left off last week at verse 21. <clears throat> and just to set the scene here, Moses has received <clears throat> his calling from God out of this burning bush, and he's done his level best to dissuade God from sending him by offering every convincing argument that he can come up with for why he's woefully unqualified for the job. And God responds to each of Moses' protests by explaining to him that this task is not one that will be accomplished by Moses' own strength or ability or talent. Rather, it will be carried out through Moses by the Lord in his strength. And then as a reassurance to Moses, God makes him a promise in verse 12 of chapter 3 saying, I will be with you. Okay? And just an aside here, I find it very interesting and worthy of note that as God is preparing to send Moses out to bring salvation to his people, and he's giving Moses these final instructions before he sets out on this new chapter of his journey, God gives him this promise by saying, I will be with you. It speaks to the unchanging nature of God and the fact that the promises of God never fade or expire. Because if you read Joshua 1.5, just as God is preparing to send Joshua and his people across the Jordan and into the promised land, and just before they begin this new chapter in their journey, God speaks this promise to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then if you turn to Matthew 28, 20, we see Jesus preparing to send his disciples out to bring the gospel of salvation to the rest of the world. And just as they're about to set out on this new chapter of their journey, Jesus makes a promise. What does he say? He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And then if you skip over to Hebrews 13, 5 through 8, as the author is concluding his letter with these final instructions and encouragements for, for the Christians there to continue in their faith and mission, he reminds them of the promise of God from generation to generation, a promise that never expires. He writes, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he finishes his thought with this statement in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, it's the same promise over and over and over again, over thousands of years to each generation, because God never changes and his promises never expire. So as we continue on this journey together, don't ever forget that not only do we have each other, which is wonderful in and of itself, but always remember that he is with us always, just as he promised Moses, just as he promised Joshua, just as Jesus promised his disciples, and just as he reminds us in his letter to the Hebrews. God is always with us. That is a promise with no expiration date. And it was consistently given to those that he was preparing to send out. Okay? So it's important that we remember this promise every time that we set out to fulfill our calling to make disciples, right? It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to realize our own inadequacies. In fact, that's quite healthy for us to do. But it's never okay to doubt his presence and commitment to us because he made us a promise. And he never changes, all right? That should give us some measure of confidence as we move forward in our calling. All right, now, we'll go back to the text, Exodus 4.21. Just as Moses is receiving his final instructions by God, and he begins the journey back to Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Over the generations, Christians, many, have struggled with this passage and others like it. Because it seems unfair. In verse 21, God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And that hardly seems fair, does it? It's like he doesn't have a choice. How can he be held morally responsible for his actions, right? This is one of those passages in Scripture that requires some scholarship if we're going to really understand what's being said here. So in the interest of due diligence as we work through this text, I just want to take a minute or two and look a little bit closer at this because everything that happens after this has to be filtered through the understanding that not only is God sovereign, but at the same time, Moses and Pharaoh and Aaron and Zipporah and all the players in the story, they all have a free will to choose to follow God's commands or not. But at first glance, it doesn't seem that way for Pharaoh, does it? So let's take a quick look. The book of Exodus refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart on several occasions between chapter 4 and 14 through those chapters. And over the course of those references to the hardening of his heart, there are three different Hebrew verbs that are used. But there's no essential difference in their meaning. So 
Although these instances are described in several different ways with these different verbs, they all mean the same thing. Okay, so there's no contradiction between them. Sometimes it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, as we just read. Sometimes Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart, as in Exodus 8.15. And sometimes the situation is described in sort of a, a neutral sense by simply saying that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as in Exodus 7:13. Three different verbs, but all with the same meaning. How can that be? Well, partially, it's a matter of understanding Hebrew psychology here. Okay, the Hebrew mind of biblical times had a very different understanding of God and His role in life and culture than the Western mind does today. The Hebrew worldview was holistic. God and life were completely intertwined in every way. The Greek worldview was Hellenistic. Life and, and God or, or the gods were compartmentalized in every way. There was separation between every aspect of life and religion and relationships and so on. And today's Western worldview is a mixture of those, which is dualistic. All right? There's going to be a quiz on this in a little bit. I'm kidding. To the Hebrew, God was the first cause of everything. Okay, without in any way denying the moral responsibility of the human being involved. So the hardening of one's heart by God, although ultimately under the sovereign hand of God, could occur without any direct or extraordinary intervention by God, meaning that Pharaoh was still responsible for his own sin, and yet God was still in control. So think of it this way. In Exodus 14, which we'll cover next week, it says that God drove back the Red Sea by a strong east wind so the Israelites could cross over. If you ask a Hebrew in that day, was it God that parted the Red Sea or was it the wind that parted the Red Sea? The Hebrew would say, yes. Because God was in everything and ultimately sovereign over everything. Right? So there's no problem for the Hebrew mind then in reconciling the idea that we're both responsible for our own actions and yet at the end of the day, God is ultimately still in control. There's another theological term for that called compatibilism. And it's, it's the reconciliation of these two ideas of free will and sovereignty coexisting without any conflict. All right? And so the, the, there's no perfect analogy. You've heard that. It's true. But the best analogy I've ever heard to ex explain that is this little story. So this isn't an original thought. I read or heard this somewhere. I don't know where. But if you were getting on an airplane in Los Angeles and it was scheduled to land in New York, okay? And let's say that airplane was your life. And you get on that plane and it takes off. And when the, when the captain turns off the seatbelt light, you're free to get up and move around if you like or you can stay in your seat. You can read a book or you can listen to music or you can watch a movie. Or you can take a nap. You can choose to talk to the people around you. Or not talk to anyone. You can go to the bathroom or stay where you are and hold it for nine hours. Right? You can make all of these decisions. And those decisions will affect the quality of your flight to one degree or another. And the quality of the flight of those around you. That's free will. You understand? You can choose. But at the end of the day, pretty much no matter what you do, that plane's going to land in New York. That's God's sovereignty over your life. So I, I hope that makes sense. My teenagers, you know, if you have teenagers, they'll say, well, but dad, if someone pulls out a knife and there's a terrorist, it just be quiet. <laughs> don't, don't mess with the analogy, okay? There's no perfect analogy, but you get the idea. I hope that helps. And, and I understand some of these concepts are hard for us to fully grasp sometimes. They are for me. And 
A part of that is because we're Westerners and we were raised with a very different worldview than the ancient Hebrew people. But the point in all of this, as we go along through this narrative today, this story, it's important to understand that although God wrote the story, each character in it is responsible for his own actions and decisions, just as we are today, okay? If we weren't responsible for our choices, our decisions, our actions, the things we do, because God's sovereign over everything, which he is, but if we weren't responsible, then why would he go to all the trouble to teach us humility and patience and love? Why bother? Why bother giving us hope and a mission and a vision and all the commands to unify with other believers and carry out this great commission for the church? Why bother? Why bother writing 40 years of herding sheep and living out an obscure life in Midian into Moses' story? Why bother if his decisions didn't make any difference? Why bother, right? The fact is our decisions do matter because we have free will and we're responsible for those choices that we make. And sometimes those choices leave us broken. And yet the good news is in all of that, because he is sovereign and he is in control and because he loves us intensely, God uses us even in our brokenness. And when I say uses us, of course, I mean in the positive sense in ministry. God uses us even when we're broken. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life as a member of the royal court. The second 40 years as a sheep herder and an employee of his wife's father. He was learning to be humble and in fact was a broken man when he encountered God at the burning bush. Which was evident in all the excuses that he gave God for why he was the wrong man to free the Israelites. He had zero confidence. He had no faith. He couldn't even speak clearly. He was a broken man, and he was right where God wanted him, okay? Just as the video alluded to earlier, sometimes God uses us when we're broken, not in spite of our brokenness, sometimes because of our brokenness. Because at those times in our lives when we have it all together, and everything's going perfectly, and we're experiencing great success in all that we put our hand to, we sometimes have a tendency to try and take on the world for God in our own strength. But that's always contrary to God's will. Every time. Because the point is never to showcase our own strength. Rather, the point should always be to showcase His strength. And sometimes that is best accomplished through us when we're broken. Why? Why is that the case? Well, the Apostle Paul mastered this understanding like no one else. He said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And again in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, he writes, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through him who strengthens me. Paul understood this better than anyone, that the best way to get things done was by the power and strength of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living in him and working through him, okay? So, do we have to be in a constant state of brokenness then? in order for God to use us. No. Absolutely not. Paul said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. God doesn't desire for you to exist in a perpetual state of brokenness by any means. 
But he does want us to learn that the strength in which we accomplish his will most effectively is always by his strength and not ours. And so the really great news for us in that is the fact that because we rely on his strength and not our own, we can still be used by God in these amazing ways, even when we're experiencing brokenness in our lives, just as Moses was. What does that mean for us today? It means that if God is telling you to do something for him, if you know that you're supposed to be serving the body of Christ, maybe he's telling you you should begin discipling others. Maybe you're supposed to pray for people. Maybe he wants you to take on a new ministry or simply be more involved in what he's doing in the body or in the church. And you're saying, but God, not right now. I'm too broken. I'm too hurt. You know, I've been, I've been wounded by the church and church people. I'm too messed up right now. I don't... I don't really have it all together, you know. My life is in a bit of turmoil and I, I really need to be stronger before I can be in ministry again. Listen, you can take those reasons right off the table as far as God is concerned because he's famous for taking broken and hurt and wounded, messed up people and doing incredible things through them by his strength. God knows your brokenness. And he wants to use you anyway. He will give you the strength and the grace and the love that you're going to need to be faithful to the calling. You simply, you know, sometimes we just have to pick up our staff and go when he says go. Okay? Now there's another side to that. Even in our brokenness, God requires obedience. God is full of grace and he's holy. Those two attributes of God coexist in him without conflict. And there are implications for us in both of those truths about him. So let's continue reading in our story. Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint, this is his wife, and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This has to be one of the more obscure passages in Scripture in the whole of the Bible. And it's one of the handful that I come across that always make me wonder why we weren't given more information, you know? Like a little backstory would be nice here. It's really a bizarre uh, piece of scripture because seemingly without warning as Moses and his family make their way back to Egypt in other words as Moses is in the process of doing exactly what God commanded him to do God shows up to kill him at first reading it seems a bit harsh doesn't it but again as we dig a little deeper we see what was really going on here God commanded his people of course all males to be circumcised. Circumcision was a symbol of dedication to God and it was also symbolic of the putting away of everything that is unpleasing to God. It was a requirement for holiness and righteousness. And if he expected all of the Israelite males to be circumcised, how much more would he expect the one that he'd chosen to lead his people to be circumcised and for those in his family to be circumcised? You see, God looked on Moses in his brokenness and with much grace and love chose him to lead his people. But Moses was still responsible for his own choices and his own actions. Even in his brokenness, Moses was expected by God to pursue righteousness. Doesn't mean he was perfect, far from it. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Moses made lots of mistakes. But as he progressed in his journey, he learned to follow God and pursue righteousness. 
for a long time in America, the charismatic churches, especially the Pentecostal charismatic churches, of which I've been a part, preached holiness predominantly. The sermons were hellfire and brimstone. Every one of them ended in an altar call for repentance. That wasn't all bad, but the problem with that format was that grace was almost never, if ever, expressed. It was all like, turn or burn, baby. You know what I'm talking about? And there were a lot of really broken people during that era who turned away from the church because they never felt loved. They never heard anything about grace. They were constantly being threatened from the pulpit with eternal hell because it was, and because it was repeated every Sunday, there was this perception that forgiveness lasted about a week. And when Sunday rolled around again, it was time to run to the altar and repent again. It was this cycle The result, the sort of fruit of that era, was a church culture that was perceived by the next generation as one that used fear and manipulation to coerce people into submission. And the church in America has been bleeding membership ever since. In response to that dilemma, there's a whole new crop of pastors that have come along preaching grace, 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 and that's good. Except that in many cases, I fear we've swung the pendulum all the way to the other extreme completely forsaking the doctrine of holiness so that tolerance and inclusion and grace are all that matters. And as a result, holiness has no place in much of our church culture today. And I'm I'm afraid that we're breeding a generation of churchgoers who say anything goes as long as we can get in a circle and sing we are the world and everybody loves each other. The danger of that church climate is that morality becomes open for interpretation by each individual instead of by the scriptures. And as long as you feel good about it, it's okay. The only hang up with that point of view is that we serve a holy God who has very high standards for his people and an expectation that as his people, we will pursue righteousness even if we're broken. In other words, God has tremendous grace for those who are broken and hurt. And in that state, he will use us for great purposes. But being broken and hurt is never a free pass from our responsibility to obey his commands, which includes righteousness and holiness. And Moses was learning this lesson here the hard way. So what happens? Well, fortunately, Moses married a woman who was quick thinking and good with a piece of flint. Her son, Gershom, who in my opinion is the real loser in this whole deal, he's sitting in the tent minding his own business. Dude's playing Xbox, right? He's not hurting anyone. And mom busts in his room with a sharp rock. Not cool, mom. Not cool at all. So she cuts off his foreskin. That's a good time. And while the kid's still trying to figure out what he did wrong, Zipporah runs out and touches it to both of Moses' feet, thereby satisfying God's righteous requirement for circumcision and saving Moses' life. Now, Moses would have already been circumcised. He was born a Hebrew in a Hebrew home. And furthermore, the Egyptians practiced circumcision. So there's little doubt that he was already circumcised. And perhaps because of that, he thought he was okay. But Gershom was born in Midian in a different culture and was obviously not circumcised. And, and dismissing the requirement for righteousness by, by God almost gets Moses killed, even for his son. The point is we have to obey God's every command. And even when we're hurt and broken, that brokenness doesn't excuse sinfulness on our part. 
We can't blame the past for our hurts, for why we might fail to serve God. A lot of people do that. You know, it's quite common these days, actually. But it's not an excuse. God sees our hurt. There's a vast amount of grace and love available to us from God because he knows our every hurt and he cares deeply about our brokenness. But even in the midst of that, he requires us to pursue righteousness, okay? The the, the victim mentality that we sometimes take on ourselves when we're hurt will always work against God's true calling in your life. Because when we perpetually play the victim, we eventually stop taking responsibility for our own actions, our own decisions, and it's always someone else's fault. But God requires us to answer for our own decisions and take responsibility for our own choices and forgiveness. Everything that we need, mercy, love, grace, forgiveness, he floods us with that as we move forward in him in righteousness, okay? And that's what happens here with Moses in this very bizarre text. Now, verse 27, it says, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he would commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So fortunately for Moses, who saved Zipporah's life, if you remember, when they first met, and her sisters at a well in Midian. His wife now returns the favor, intercedes for him, saves him, and this enables him to move forward in his mission for God. It's a good day, but you can be sure, quite sure that he learned a lesson that day about obedience. Okay? There's an old chorus that it's simply three verses from Psalm 51 set to music. I don't know if you know it. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. I learned that when I was a little boy. I don't even remember where. I sing that chorus very often in my personal devotion time with the Lord, because I don't ever want to dismiss sin in my own life or be lazy about pursuing righteousness. But sometimes I am. And I repent, and I often sing this song. We have to be obedient, even when we're hurting and broken, okay? And one more point, and I'll hurry. One more point that we can take away from this part of Moses' story today is that if you will allow him to, God will be strongest in your life where you are the most broken. Let's read chapter 5. It's the last part of our text, and it's not a long chapter. I think it's 22 verses, and the first verse of chapter 6. And we'll go through it quickly. But I really want to read through the chapter with you, just straight through. We won't stop until we get to the end. I think you'll be glad we did, because there's a tremendous lesson here for us in chapter 5 and in the coming chapters, which we'll get into next week, okay? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The, the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why I say, why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord now. Go and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, you, your daily task each day. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. I imagine rather expectantly thinking something good would come out of this meeting. And they, they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord took look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Once again, Moses is broken and hurt. He does everything that God tells him, and what happens? He's rejected by Pharaoh, and worse, by his own people, who he's trying to save. But what comes next is an incredible display of God's power through Moses. And we'll get into the plagues and the exodus in the coming weeks. But you know what's coming. God does amazing works of strength and deliverance right after this moment. This moment where Moses is standing before God at Pharaoh's court, rejected and hurt and broken. The truth is we all have hurts in our lives that we carry around with us, don't we? And the older you get, often the more of those hurts you can accumulate in life. Painful events, people that have hurt you, mistakes we've made, and we carry them around like weights. Left unresolved, those hurts become burdens. And eventually, if not dealt with properly, those burdens become brokenness. But listen, brokenness is always a catalyst for change in our lives. 
Brokenness is always a catalyst for change in our lives, for the better or for the worse. But one way or the other, brokenness changes us. You see, we either put up walls to protect ourselves, or we become impotent because we fear being hurt further, or we allow God to flood that place of brokenness and show himself mighty in our lives, which always brings us closer to him. It strengthens our character. It makes us better people, stronger people, godlier people. And the absolute strongest display of God's strength and power in our lives will always come from the very same place as our deepest brokenness. If we'll just let him have his way in us. Moses' deepest hurt, his greatest brokenness, came from Pharaoh's court. It was there that he ached over the oppression of his people. He hurt over the Hebrew people. It was there that he killed an Egyptian and tried to cover it up. It was there that he was angry and hurt over that. It was there that he was pursued by Pharaoh and had to run for his own life from the very people that he grew up with. It was there upon his return that his own people, along with Pharaoh, rejected him. There was a massive wound in Moses' life, utter brokenness, that came directly from Pharaoh's court. That was the deepest place of brokenness in his life. So where does God choose to show himself the strongest in Moses' life? Where does he do his greatest work, his most profound display of power and might? Where is Moses used by God like never before? Beyond his wildest dreams, where does God raise up a champion in Moses? In Pharaoh's court. The very same place of Moses' deepest brokenness and hurt. It was there that God took a completely broken man and turned him into the greatest champion for God the world had ever known. And all of that change and healing and victory was able to come in Moses' life because he was willing to do what God called him to do and to go where God called him to go and to say what God told him to say and to be who God called him to be. And what was the one place where God told Moses that he had to go so that he could finally fulfill his destiny, his calling? It was directly to the place of his deepest brokenness. Some of you have no idea how close you are to being used by God in ways that you could never imagine. But there's one place that we're not willing to give up. The one place that we don't want anyone to have access to, let alone God. The one place in our lives that harbors the deepest hurt and the greatest brokenness. And it's the one place that God is waiting for you to give him. And as soon as you do, he's going to take you places that you never dreamed you'd go. And you're going to become someone that you never thought you could be because out of the very place of your greatest brokenness will rise up the Spirit of God in your life who has overcome all of the brokenness of the world when he was nailed to a cross and left to die. And just as he rose from the dead a champion to sit at the right hand of the Father, so he too will raise you up out of your brokenness and make you a champion for his kingdom and lead you into your destiny, your calling. But you have to give him access to the broken places in your life. You have to trust him. You have to obey and submit to him when he calls your name. Okay? I know it isn't easy to talk about this, about brokenness. But please be encouraged today. No matter how broken you might be right now, he has an unbelievably wonderful future.
future and calling for you as you give all of that over to him. Okay? Can you receive that this morning? Let's pray.